Last week we talked about the rapture. And I just want to go ahead and just go on record. I just want to say this. We believe that the pre-tribulation rapture is a destructive deception that's touching the church in a negative way. And uh, we don't believe it, that, that the scriptures bear it out. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week and you'd like to hear the teaching on that, you can grab one out of the bookstore tonight. We think there's good people that teach that. We don't, we're not against anybody and, and that teaches that. We just think that that teaching is errant. And it, and it leaves us unprepared for a day of challenge and trial that's in front of us. Good. Everybody got an outline. I want to um, touch base on Ezekiel 33. If you can give me just a little bit more. My, my throat's a little, little weak tonight. Ezekiel 33. I, um, I've been thinking about the trumpet lately. The blast of the trumpet. And, um, you know, Joel 2, it says, Sound an alarm. Blow the trumpet in Zion. And uh, I was just thinking about what it means to blow a trumpet. You know, there are maybe many pictures that we have about what that is. But I want to tell you that if you are dead asleep, and somebody came into your bedroom, and they uh, had a shofar, and they got about six inches from your face, and they lit that shofar up. I want to guarantee you that you would not be finding your uh, record button to record that sound so you could listen to it over and over and over in your car. It would be a sound you would not like. In fact, you would probably have negative feelings about the one that blew the trumpet. And you would probably not like the sound that the trumpet made. The good thing would be that you were awake. I, I don't know about you. Like my alarm clock, for instance, I've got the wimpiest alarm clock ever. The reason why is because I don't want to feel bad all day. Because when you have those alarm clocks that, make, that wake you up and startle you, it just, for me, it just kind of makes me feel yucky for the rest of the day. My alarm clock is a light. It comes on nice and smooth and slow. It's like the sunrise. And then, after a little while, crickets start chirping. That's how I wake up. Yeah, my wife needs the shofar blast. I wake up to the, the little the sunrise clock. It's, just, it's a wimpy clock. I, I, I like it. And I just started thinking about what it means to blow a trumpet... First Thessalonians 5, it tells us, and I'm going to hit Ezekiel 33, and I'm going to get into this outline, but I've just been chewing on these things. The two admonitions are be sober and don't be asleep at the end of the age. And I just, to, to blow a trumpet, to sound an alarm to a sleepy people, I guarantee you that's not going to win you friends. That's my point I'm trying to make. Sounding an alarm to a people who are asleep does not help you to win a popularity contest. In heaven it does, but not in the earth. 
And the truth of the matter is, the one who is asleep is not going to like the trumpet blast. It's not going to like the one that's blasting the trumpet. But if it saves them from their house being burned, you know, from them being burnt down with their house, they're going to be grateful in the end. You know, you run in, you blast the trumpet, it wakes them up, they run out of the house that's on fire, and they are safe. They'll be glad in the end, but they might momentarily not like you very much. And I've just been chewing on the tension of what it means to sound an alarm. It, it's, it makes a good song, sound an alarm, blow the trumpet. It makes a good song, it preaches real well, but for one that actually wants to live their life with their mouth to the trumpet and blasting the trumpet to try to wake up sleepy people. It's not that cool. It's not that cool. And I, and I don't know the half of it. I mean, I'm just beginning to stick my toe into that, into that pond. And, um, but at the end of the day, I think if, if you have someone who's a faithful trumpet blower, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And uh, if the trumpet blowers will be faithful, it's going to be the best for us all in the end. But look at this, Ezekiel 33. Son of man, verse 2. Speak to the children, your people, and say to them, when I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet... You can probably turn me down just a little smidge now, Kenny, because it is good, good and loud. Thank you. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take the warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes the warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet... God, I pray you'd give us watchmen who will put their mouth to the trumpet and sound an alarm. God, we need that now. God. The watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away, and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity. His blood I will require at at the watchman's hand. Verse 7, so you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. The key point is this. God wants to raise up messengers at the end of the age. And we, we throw that language around often, you know. Day of the Lord proclaimer, end time messenger. Messengers at the end of the age, a, a prophet or an apostle or Something like, and we throw this language around. I'm telling you, if God makes you a messenger at the end of the age, it's going to boil down to you putting a trumpet to your mouth and sounding an alarm to people who are sleepy, who aren't necessarily going to like the way that sounds, and they probably aren't going to like you. For real. I pray that we get the fantasy out of this. It's really true. And I want to, I pray. That there would be courage that would hit our soul. Anyone who believes they're called to be a proclaimer, I pray courage would hit your soul. That you would, you would answer that and you would be a watchman who would rightly see and rightly hear and rightly proclaim. 
Oh, that God would give us watchmen in this hour. Oh, we need them, beloved. We need watchmen with the word from heaven that we would wake up. Oh, I want to wake up. Good. All right, let's move through this outline. We're going to identify the, what it means, the day of the Lord. We're going we're to get, hopefully, clarity on this in this session. Simple definition of the day of the Lord. Letter A. Any season of time in which God releases a decree of judgment against a people and manifests his glory through releasing the decreed judgment. So he does two things. He decrees the judgment is coming and then he, he manifests his own glory by carrying out the decree. That can be understood as a day of the Lord. And there's many historic uh, days of the Lord that the Bible identifies. And I give you a list right there in B. And all these are, are, are uh, verses and chapters that specifically identify uh, what the Lord has called days of the Lord in the past. They're days that God has decreed through prophets that judgment was coming and then God carried them out. And there are, there's a list of, of these. Uh, and I just move it through. And I, uh, Israel's judgment at the hands of Assyria in 721. Judah's judgment at the hands of Babylon in 606. Egypt's judgment at the hands of Babylon in 606. Babylon's judgment at the hands of Medo-Persia in 537. These are all specifically identified as days of the Lord. So when you read those verses, and I really want to encourage you to go back and read them, what you're going to find is the uh, immediate prophetic fulfillment took place in those places. Amos stands up and he prophesies and he talks about how judgment is going to hit the northern ten tribes and Assyria is going to do it and God makes that happen. He brings that to pass. God raises up the Assyrian empire for a couple hundred years, makes them the strongest empire in the earth and uses them as a rod of judgment against his own people. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that's our God. In fact, you'll find throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord events, God will raise up foreign heathen nations. God will call the kings of those nations his servants, even before they're even serving him. He'll use foreign kings, and he'll say, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, Cyrus, and he'll use those kings in those kingdoms, and he'll bring them down upon other nations, upon his own and upon other nations, and that's the way the Lord does it. He's the one that moves the boundary lines of nations so that men would grope and grovel for God. He's the one that orchestrates world events. It all operates under his sovereign hand. Shocking, but true. Jesus prophesies, you know, 35 years in advance that Israel is going to be destroyed by the Roman Empire. And in 70 AD, General Titus, 67 to 70, General Titus under the Roman, uh, the, the Roman, he's a general, and then he becomes a king. Uh, the, 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 what do you call the Roman guy? Caesar. It's a salad dressing too. But um, pump. Okay. 
he comes in 67 and 70 at, at Jesus' prophetic word. God in the flesh prophesies the dispersion and destruction of the nation of his own people. Huh. Maybe we don't know him so well. Because we mostly have a grid in the West of a God who never does anything that causes any kind of challenge or pressing. And, and blessing is just something that makes me more temporally happy. And yet the Lord gives us multiple biblical examples of when he has raised up nations in historic day of the Lord events. Now, and see, I mentioned there's other uh, times in the Bible, and I just mentioned one when Rome destroyed uh, Israel. But there's certainly day of the Lord events. He just didn't call them days of the Lord, but there are times when God decrees the, the judgment and then God carries it out and it brings devastation. Those are day of the Lord events, whether he actually uses the label or not. So if you get the picture, God prophetically decrees there's judgment coming and then God carries that thing out. And what is he doing? I tell you, the entire time, he's manifesting his own glory. He's manifesting his own glory. He is, he is uh, showing the nations that he is the supreme God over everything, that he is the sovereign that's in control. And then what is he doing? He's working on 10 different levels all at the same time. He's bringing the least amount of pressing necessary for people's hearts to turn towards God. That's how he does it. The challenge is that we have very little palate and very little grid for the God that does this kind of activity in the earth. And most of us in the West simply believe that even though that perhaps the church isn't looking as good as she ought, that he's just going to, you know, without any kind of a, a pressing or any kind of a challenging event, somehow he's going to snap his fingers and make us all better. But even, even you know, one person has the mentality that God's going to snap his fingers and make us all better without any challenges. The other person goes, well, no, just that lukewarm person, they're actually going to, they're going to be fine. And, and when the rapture comes, we're all going to get out of here anyway before anything bad happens. And beloved, I just tell you, that's just not the biblical precedent of the way that God deals with his people. It's just not. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He uses judgment events to bring pressings, to bring purity. Okay. So those are some examples of the historic days of the Lord. Now, Here's what we have. Biblically, in front of us, before us, there are two specific days. And when I say day, I mean seasons of time that are coming that the Bible identifies as days of the Lord. They're future to the planet. The way that we know that they're future is because they've never been fulfilled in Scripture. If they're prophesied yet unfulfilled, that means they must come to pass or the prophecy isn't true. Isn't that right? So if it's in the prophetic scriptures, then we know it's going to come to pass. And that's how we have a picture of two specific day of the Lord events that are coming in the future of the planet. Now, one under A. The Joel 2 Acts 2 prophecy. It shall come to pass in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And it goes on. It says, I will show signs and wonders. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke. And it says, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That is a promise of global revival that will hit the planet prior 
to the final day of the Lord that's coming to the planet. There is a, a gigantic, massive, biblical promise that we have, beloved, that has not been fulfilled, that is still coming before us, where there will be a spirit of revival in every tribe and tongue and people group in the earth. The Bible's clear in Revelations that you have a, 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 a group before the throne of God that have been martyred in the last three and a half years of this age and they're identified as a group from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. Now for you to get a martyr spirit on every tribe and tongue and nation and people group, I mean down to the, the, the individual dialects of languages, For you to get a martyr spirit where they would die for the cause of Christ. Guess what you must have infiltrate those communities? The presence and the power of God. The spirit of revival is going to come in a dramatic way sweeping the planet like in a way we've never seen before. It will be revival in every people group on the planet. Unto this, they they will be martyrs for the name of the man Christ Jesus. It's powerful. They won't shrink back. They will be that possessed with love. They'll be that possessed with God that they won't shrink back in the face of persecution. All the way to martyrdom. There's two verses I gave you, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. They identify that before the throne of God, there is this this vast company, this, this myriad of believers from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation. And they come out of the great tribulation. A martyr spirit is upon them why? Because they've tasted this global awakening that's coming. The Acts 2, Joel 2 awakening is before us. It's coming, beloved. Signs, wonders, miracles. It's going to break out across the globe. This thing is in front of us. When we pray, and as I was saying tonight, when we pray and we're believing God for revival, I'm not believing for a little thing that's going to sweep 50,000 people in Gwinnett County into the kingdom. I mean, I want that. Don't get me wrong. And I'll be real excited and be high-fiving when that comes. But I will stay praying. Because what we're looking for is the one that hits the globe. And you know what we'll do when that thing hits? Stay praying. Because we know that that is the time when the 21 judgment events from the book of Revelation are going to be pounding the planet as well. So we stay focused. We do what we do. We stay focused. But that revival is on its way. That revival is before us. And if I believe this. If you don't have a mentality right now that prepares you for global end-time revival and global end-time judgment, you're completely disconnected from God's future plan that's in the Bible. You've got to have those two things in front of you. You've got to have those two pictures before you or you're disconnected from what God's doing scripturally. Am I making sense? So the Bible promises a great outpouring is coming. But I say there in 2 under A that it's essential that we understand the implications of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And and when I'm saying great and terrible day of the Lord, I'm talking about the final day of the Lord in the Bible. There's two in front of us, and I'm going to give you specifics on each of those. But when I say the great and terrible, I'm talking about the final day of the Lord. We must understand what's coming to the planet in the future day of the Lord events. We've got to have a picture of this. If we don't, we will be absolutely, completely unprepared. 
And so the thing is that in view of that reality that we would embrace the right lifestyle now, understanding what's coming so we can embrace the prescribed biblical lifestyle for those that live in the generation that the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, good. B, the first future day of the Lord, it's the day when Antichrist will storm Jerusalem and take over leadership in Israel. It will affect Israel. Um, uh, they will be, Israel will be the first, uh, how do I want to say it? They're like the first target, and then it affects the nations. It's a three and a half year day, uh, day of the Lord event. And Antichrist is the rod that God uses. Antichrist is the rod that God uses. I'll give you more clarity on that in a minute. That's the first one that's coming. It comes uh, halfway through the last seven years of this age. And it's a three and a half year event. And then the second future day of the Lord is the one I'm calling the great and terrible day. It's going to be against Antichrist and his kingdom. And it's going to come at the hand of Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself will manifest and he will bring to pass judgment upon Antichrist and the beast kingdoms on this planet. Jesus himself will bring a military campaign that will destroy Antichrist and those that are, that are joining themselves to him and his kingdom. And I want to say this. It's right there, and I give you all of these verses. These are unfulfilled day of the Lord chapters and verses. But uh, look at that last sentence. It says, The specific features of this final day of the Lord will include all of the unfulfilled portions of prophetic scripture relating to the day of the Lord. Every single prophetic verse that says the day of the Lord is coming, this is the way the Lord does prophetic math sometimes. He'll go ahead and he'll prophesy a day of the Lord, let's call it against Babylon. In fact, let's just turn over to Isaiah 13. He'll prophesy a day of the Lord against Babylon, and then he'll leave some features unfulfilled, knowing that he's going to apply those prophetic features later in another fulfillment. He does it with prophetic scripture all the time. Isaiah 13 verse 1 it says it's a burden against Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw but then you get down and you look at verse like 9 and he says behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it look at verse 10 the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. It's going to turn the lights off. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world. Now we're not talking about Babylon, are we? We're talking about the world. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. That's an unfulfilled portion of Scripture. So we know then 
that when the Lord says that on the day of the Lord he's going to do this, the stuff that's unfulfilled, it's going to be applied in a future day of the Lord's scenario. That's the way the Lord uses prophetic scriptures. That doesn't, that thing, see most people go, oh, that's just figurative. It didn't happen, so it was a figurative thing. No, that's not how the Lord does. A mortal more rare than fine gold, that is a figure of speech. He's talking about a comparison. It's a metaphor. More rare than fine gold. What he's talking about is a greatly diminished number of people that they're less than actual gold in the earth. There's a, there's a truth behind the metaphor. The, the, the truth is this. The number of humans will be extremely low on the globe. Because it's, it's going to be, it's a uh, result of the day of the Lord. That is an unfulfilled portion of prophetic scripture. It is coming. So my point is this. On the great and terrible day of the Lord... Every prophetic verse that has been unfulfilled about the day of the Lord will be fulfilled in the great and terrible day. Or it's not prophecy. And because it is prophecy, I can guarantee you it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So we need to be prepared in heart. Okay, now let's look at this. Roman numeral three. I want to say this too while I'm thinking about it. You know, it's, it's challenging sometimes to have a good eschatology if you don't have a system of theology that weaves together the entirety of the Bible. I found that if you'll get an eschatology, it will demand you to get a system. And the big words are, if you get an eschatology, you'll get a systematic theology. You'll find that when you find out how the book ends, it will tie together the whole story of the book. I don't know if anybody ever does that. I do. Whenever I get a magazine, I always read the back of it, and I read it from back to front. I just always do that. You know, I do that with books too. say, who won? Okay, good. Now, how's this thing work? Same thing with the Bible. If you land in eschatology, it will demand you to get a system of theology. What I'm saying is, it will, an eschatology, if you get a clear eschatology, it will tie together all the, the uh, pathway of the entire Bible. It'll make it all clear. You won't just have a bunch of minor prophets, a bunch of major prophets, you have no idea what they're talking about. You'll understand this. Every prophet that's got their name written on a book in the Old Testament, minor and major, they're all day of the Lord messengers. Every one of them. Every one of them is warning a people about a coming judgment event that's, that's either in their generation or a, just a generation in front of them. They're all day of the Lord messengers, every single one of them. The entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to the day of the Lord, beloved. Somebody goes, well, what about Jonah? He's the greatest day of the Lord prophet yet. I believe, I believe Jonah... I'm gonna, I'll do sometime, somewhere, I'll do a message on Jonah. But Jonah, I believe, is the manual for day of the Lord messengers. It's not about a fish. I promise you. It's about a man who stood in the greatest city on the earth, the most powerful empire in the earth. And he stood in that city in 790 BC and he said, destruction is determined for you in 40 days. And at his preaching, the proclamation that came out of his mouth came with such power on it, had so much zip on it, that the king of the nation calls a fast and puts sackcloth on every animal. The king. It's like going into Iran 
but making Iran as strong as America. And saying, you are decreed for destruction in 40 days. And the word of the Lord goes forth like an arrow and pierces every person. Until they all fall in repentance. What happens? They repent so hardcore that the day of the Lord is averted. It doesn't hit them for 200 more years. Jonah is the first one that prophesies the day of the Lord to the Assyrian Empire. All right. That's a little side note. All right, Roman numeral three. Okay. I say there in A this. We've got to get a grid on how this thing plays out at the end of the age. The end of the age is not about Satan. It's not about Antichrist and their, and, and their big way to do things. The end of the age is about our sovereign God. And how he is orchestrating the affairs of humankind to bring the greatest glory to the name of his son and the greatest number of people in voluntary love using the least severe means necessary. And somebody goes, man, these are intense means that he has to use. And I say, yes, and how wicked is the heart of mankind? He will bring the least measure of pressings necessary to produce the greatest number of voluntary lovers. That's what the end of the age is about. It's about the birthing of a kingdom that's coming to the earth. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. The man Christ Jesus will rule the planet from Jerusalem. There's a thousand year reign coming, beloved. This thing doesn't end with a war. That war births a kingdom. And that kingdom will be a kingdom of everlasting righteousness and they will learn war no more. The law will go forth from Jerusalem. The man Christ Jesus will be proclaiming the law. What kind of a teaching meeting will that be when Jesus is breaking down the scriptures for us? I'll show up to those. So we've got to get a grid that it's the Lord is the one that initiates end time events and the Lord is the one who is going to gather the nations against Jerusalem. So that's what I'm talking about right now is the day of the Lord that's coming that's going to be Antichrist against Israel and the nations. Look at Zechariah 14 too. It says, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Who is doing the gathering? God. God. The city shall be taken. The house is rifled. The women ravished. Half of the city should go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The day of the Lord against Israel and the nations by the hand of Antichrist begins when Antichrist breaks the covenant that he's going to make. It's going to be a seven-year peace treaty. He's going to break that covenant. He's going to storm Jerusalem. And when he storms Jerusalem, he's going to take half of the city into captivity. Half of the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going into captivity. Somebody goes, what's captivity? Concentration camps. Somebody goes, didn't that already happen? Not in the way Zechariah 14 says. Zechariah 13 and Zechariah 14, uh, 12 through 14 really give us the picture. But Zechariah 14 tells us that this military campaign against Jerusalem will be halted by the Lord Jesus when he comes. That hasn't happened yet. And so what does it mean? It means this, that there is a future day 
There is going to be an evil ruler. His name's Antichrist. He's going to move against Israel with a, a conglomeration of nations. The Lord is the one that's going to be pulling the string. They're going to move against Israel. He will, he will charge the temple. He'll proclaim himself as God in the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. When he does that, he's going to take 50% of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and put them in, cap, in concentration camps. The net result of the day of the Lord against Israel is going to be this. Two-thirds, hear me, two-thirds of the Jews globally will be killed. That's coming. It's coming. Why should you pray for the salvation of Israel? Because two-thirds of the unsaved are going to be killed. If you can get more saved now, you lessen the two-thirds number. It's God's heart. Two-thirds are going to be cut off in all the land. That's what Zechariah 13 tells us. Look at it there in verse 8, the bottom of the page. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. That's one-third of the Jews worldwide. Verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, each one will say, this is the Lord is my God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the day in which all Israel shall be saved. We love to throw that verse around, all Israel shall be saved, but we have no picture. There's a future Holocaust coming. If you want to read some very scary language, read Ezekiel 22. God says, I will gather them into the midst of Jerusalem and I will, I will put them in the furnace and smelt them like gold and silver is smelted. And that's exactly the language from Zechariah 13. The Lord has a future Holocaust that he is orchestrating. How do you get a rebellious and obstinate people to turn from their rebellion? You bring the least severe pressing upon them possible to move them into the spirit of revelation. And the Lord identifies it. It's two-thirds cut off. That's the least severe. So this thing is going to happen for three and a half years the Bible gives that to us that in Revelation 11 and several of the places that Antichrist is going to be trampling the holy city for three and a half years. He's going to take half the population in the concentration camps and two-thirds of the Jews in all the land will be cut off and die. That should, that should pierce our hearts. That should give you a prayer life for Israel right there. Okay. Beside simply the Jews going through a holocaust, Revelation 13, let's just look at this. It identifies that the Antichrist will target saints. He'll target the church. And it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome the saints. 
Who grants authority like that? Only God. Only God can grant that authority. And why would he do that? The Bible tells us in Daniel 11, he says, I will, I will uh, uh, take some of those who are understanding and they will be purified when they fall. It will cause their hearts to be purified when some of those of understanding fall. So the Lord uses the pressing even on the church. And martyrdom will break out globally. Authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then all those who dwell on the earth that don't know the Lord is the idea. All those will worship him. So what's God doing? He's removing all the gray areas, beloved. The great tribulation, the day of the Lord at the end of the age, he removes all the gray areas. He takes every prop and he kicks it out of our lives. So we've nothing else to prop our life on. We've got nothing else to be, you know, uh, you know, diverted in our attention with. It's either this. You take the mark that this demonic man is telling you to take, or you choose Jesus and Jesus alone, and it'll cost you your life. God gives us the grace of kicking out all the props so we can make a solid decision for the man Christ Jesus. He makes it real clear. I was looking, and I was just thinking, you know, there are so many different striations of Christianity in the world right now. The largest numbers will have us over a billion believers in the earth. But if you do the math and you start looking at at what the different believers believe, it's very difficult to find 500 million that even subscribe to just the standards of evangelical Christianity. You know, that Jesus was sinless, Jesus is the Son of God. It's very difficult to even find 500 million that fall into that category. And so what it is, is God brings a pressing on all those called believers He uses Antichrist to do it. He kicks out all the props, and it's just this. All the gray areas go away. You're either in with Jesus or you're out. You know, if if it was like that right now, we would know who was in and out. It would be very simple. You know, answer this altar call, and you'll be in with Jesus, and there's a guy outside waiting to martyr everybody that answers the altar call. It makes it real simple. Because I don't think God would require you to die to get saved. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe we've bought into a Christianity that doesn't actually have biblical foundation to it. All the disciples were martyred. Take up your cross and follow me. They weren't thinking figuratively when Jesus said that, they were thinking literally. Why? Because cross was the normal manner of execution in that day. All right, that's what it's going to look like. That's the day of the Lord to Israel and the day of the Lord to the nations. God uses Antichrist as a rod to correct and to purify and to refine the bride and causes all men to make a decision for or against God. The saints will be refined through the furnace of testings at the hand of Antichrist. There's the verses. Go and read them. All right, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Roman numeral four. It's the day that Jesus comes from heaven in the fury of a fire that will devour every adversary of God. He is going to come in ferocious fire, and he's going to come dealing out retribution and wrath on everyone that has persecuted his bride and everybody that has rejected him. 
He's going to come. They've, what they've done at that point is they've all sided with Satan and begun to worship Satan. And he comes in retribution in that hour with fire. And he's going to be fully glorified in that day. And so I explain in B that we've got to understand that he's coming in context to a military campaign. There's been a three and a half year military campaign that Antichrist has been, you know, uh, pressing on Israel and pressing on the nations. Jesus is coming to end that military campaign. So when they thought Jesus was coming the first time as a warrior, they, what they were doing was they were looking for Messiah to come as this, this king that would, that would uh, set everything right in the nations, and instead he comes as a lamb. Well, they didn't have it wrong. He is coming as a king. It's the second coming. He comes as a king, and he ends the military campaign that Antichrist has been, you know, lashing out on the earth with. He comes to end that destruction. So let's just read a few verses. It talks about the coming of the Lord. Let's look at these slowly. <coughs> Page four. Second Thessalonians one. Verse seven. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will all have received the mark of the beast. At this point in time, they will have all sided with Antichrist and they'll be worshiping the devil. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you is believed. Look at Jude 1. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's coming with thousands and thousands of his saints. So how does this work? See, the seventh trumpet initiates the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day includes the rapture and the second coming and the bold judgments. And the great and terrible day, it lasts from the seventh trumpet to the seventh bowl. We believe it takes place in about a 30-day period of time. While the day of the Lord at the hand of Antichrist is three and a half years, the day of the Lord of the nations at the hand of the Lord is about 30 days. It's about a 30-day period of time. And so when Jesus returns, he's coming as king. It happens in several stages, and I have it there in D. First, he comes to the sky, and that's what we talked about last week, the rapture and the aerial procession. We explained that in pretty good detail. There's a rewarding of the saints that takes place. It says when he comes, his reward is with him, and he rewards the saints immediately after the rapture. And then he comes to the nations, and then he comes to Jerusalem. His coming to the nations is across the planet. He's a real man in time, coming into time, coming to the nations, and he's initiating a military campaign on the globe. That's what's going to happen on the great and terrible day. The man Christ Jesus will come in a glorified body in time. Time doesn't stop. It continues to go. It's going to continue to go for the thousand years. How do you measure thousand years? In time. So when he comes, it doesn't 
stop and everything goes funny, it continues to go. And Jesus lands on the planet and initiates a military campaign against Antichrist and all those that have joined the beast kingdom. All right, let's read a few verses. Revelation 14, I'm on the top of page 5 now. He's coming with the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God on the planet. It says, So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's 200 miles. 200 miles outside the city of Jerusalem, there was blood that was about three feet deep. That's what that's, that's, what that's telling us. All right, let's look at this in Revelation 19, and we'll give you the context now. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. He makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, And his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should, what? Strike the nations. It's amazing how we read these verses and we just, they don't connect to reality for us. And he himself will rule them, what? The nations. With a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress. That's what Revelation 14 is talking about. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I begin to describe in the next uh, three letters there, and I just want to kind of move through them a little quickly. But I, I begin to describe there that this harvest is a harvest of wicked people that the Lord Jesus himself is going to trample on the earth. He is going to have a 200-mile procession, and there's multiple verses, and I'd encourage you to look them up and study this, but a 200-mile procession from Basra, which is in modern-day Jordan, all the way to Mount Megiddo, just outside Jerusalem. That's 200 miles exactly. And the prophetic scriptures give us the picture that Jesus comes to Basra and his, his clothes are covered in blood. That's Isaiah 63. They're covered in blood. And then Revelation 14 tells us that for 200 miles that the blood is as deep as three feet up to horses' bridles on the earth. What's he talking about? He's talking about a military buildup from Basra to Megiddo Megiddo will be a military staging zone. The Bible gives it to us real clear that the kings of the east are going to come and they're going to fight against the lamb in Revelation 16. They're going to gather together against Jesus. It'll be the greatest military buildup that the earth has ever seen. It'll be 200 miles of military buildup. And the Lord Jesus with the armies of heaven and with the saints singing, we get to sing. The angels... He's gonna, he'll be on the planet. He'll be treading the wine press. And the Bible gives us about six or seven different things that are actually moving out from Jesus. There's fire. There's sword. There's pestilence. There's things going before him. It's devouring the people. And in some places, the blood from the dead will be three feet deep. That's a real war that's coming to the planet 
for real. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. See, we sing these things and we say these things. We have no concept what the scripture is even talking about, beloved. It would seem to me that it's incumbent upon us to get into the verses and find out, just read them slowly and find out what he talking about. Habakkuk 3, it's in there, it's in my notes. Habakkuk 3 is one of the most scary chapters talking about Jesus trampling the nations. And here's how it's going to go. When Jesus tramples the nations, there will be a 100% casualty rate on the side of the enemy and not one person on Jesus' side will even be struck. It will be, it will be that severe and that devastating. It causes my heart to tremble because you know what? Our great God who loves mercy will in that day have no other option but full-blown wrath and that will be mercy in that day. It causes my heart to tremble because you know what? The one that right now is lukewarm, the one that right now is an enemy of God, they've got to come to know the Lord for in that day the pressure will be so intense upon them to, to you know, take the mark of the beast and to join the beast's kingdom. I mean, my goodness, this is coming to the planet, beloved. The great and terrible days at hand. And what to those that are, are called right now? See, some of you guys were like, yeah, I feel like I'm called to be a, a day of the Lord messenger. What to you to proclaim the day of the Lord? I think about Josiah. King Josiah, he's, he initiates revival. And 23 years later, Babylon is going to come and, and destroy Jerusalem. And Jeremiah stands up in the days of Josiah's revival and he says, I tell you, there is a boiling pot coming from the north. There's a whirlwind coming from the north. And he prophesies and he carries the trumpet blast. Jeremiah 4.19 tells us he carries the trumpet blast for 23 years. He's sounding the alarm and the people are not heeding. In the days of revival, Jeremiah is prophesying that the day of the Lord is coming. All right, turn over page six, and I'm landing. Now, God's dealings with the Assyrian Empire, this is historic, this is 722. They give us the picture of the way the Lord is going to do these two coming day of the Lord events. What God does with Assyria is this. From about 900 to about 700, he raises up the Assyrian Empire. It makes, he makes them the most powerful nation in all the earth. We don't understand. Nineveh, we don't get this. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So when Jonah is sent into Nineveh, he's prophesying in the capital of the most powerful nation in the earth. And so... God raises up Assyria and God uses Assyria as his rod. Look at Isaiah 10. It's right there in your notes. He's prophesying the destruction of Assyria here through Isaiah. But look how he's called, what he calls Assyria. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger 
and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. He says, Assyria, you are the rod of my anger. You are the one that I'm putting my staff of indignation in your hand. He says, I will send him, that's Assyria, against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath, and I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is raising up Assyria in 790. He's raising him up from about 900 to 700, actually. He says, yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off a few nations. Cut off not a few nations. What's he saying? He goes, I'm raising you up, Assyria, but you don't think it's me. You think it's you. You think you're the one that's got the power, but it's me that's raised you up, Assyria. You don't understand that I'm the God that moves the boundary lines just like I like. And so Assyria comes, and in 722, Assyria is God's rod against the northern tribes because the northern tribes have given themselves completely to idol worship. They're all worshiping idols. And so God raises them up and uses them as an as a, uh, instrument of judgment. And then I say there in B, but it's less than 20 years later that the Lord began to bring judgment on Assyria because the king of Assyria had become, Assyria had become arrogant. And so I explain how that happens. What happens is this. The one king of Assyria, he is used by the Lord to strike the northern kingdoms. The kingdom changes, and Sennacherib, Sennacherib, however you want to say it, the next king, he decides he's going to go ahead and hit Jerusalem and Judah. And Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem, and Isaiah the prophet, they get together, and Isaiah, listen to this, amazing. He hears the word of the Lord, and Isaiah says, that king will not come within the walls of Jerusalem. God will strike him. And look at verse 12 there in Isaiah 10. It says, It shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. And if you read in the book of 2 Kings and you read in the book of uh, 2 Chronicles and you get the story, Isaiah actually prophesies and he says, He will be destroyed. And he uses different language, but the idea is without human means. And what happens? The king of Assyria comes and he camps around Jerusalem. And when he does, Isaiah's uh, prophetic word goes out. And the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 Assyrian soldiers outside the walls of Jerusalem. A minute ago, God was using Assyria as the rod of his wrath. Now the Lord is slaying Assyria by the hand of the angel of the Lord and through the prophetic word. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem that day after Hezekiah's prophesied, Isaiah's prophesied and Hezekiah's encouraged? You're that day and you go up to look over the wall of Jerusalem and there are 185,000 dead bodies outside. Three Georgia domes of people all over the, all over the place. And that begins the day of the Lord. That Amos 5 prophesies. That begins the day of the Lord to Assyria. It's the picture of the end of the age. The Lord is going to raise up Antichrist. He's going to use him to strike Israel. He's going to use him to pressure the church. And then the Lord himself, by supernatural means, is going to come and slay Antichrist and slay his kingdom. He gives us the Assyrian Empire 
as a picture of how this is going to go at the end of the age, beloved. You know, if we think, well, I mean, the bottom line is this. The Lord does that for us as a picture. We can't look at that and go, oh, it's figurative. No, I tell you, he's going to slay way more than 185,000 soldiers. At the end of the age, God is going to vindicate his bride. He's going to glorify his son. And his son is going to open up. He's going to enact an age of everlasting righteousness. He's going to rule from Jerusalem. He's going to bring uh, as many voluntary lovers as is possible in. But this is not going to come by the waving of an arm or some, you know, you know, we almost think it's like a magic wand. God is going to wave. No, he's very committed to human processes. And he moves within time. He adds spiritual dimensions, but he's very committed to, to human processes. And he wants human hearts to choose his son or deny him. And he's going to narrow the path. He's going to remove the gray areas. And he's going to allow people to make a choice either for his son or for the devil. And I tell you, at the end of the age, men's hearts will grow cold. And they will choose wickedness and lawlessness. Their hearts will be revealed. Beloved, I tell you, we must be a people right now, right now, who are aware and alert and alive in heart, coming into the knowledge of God, giving ourselves to to pursuing revelation and the knowledge of the prophetic scriptures, giving ourselves to understanding of the heart of, of the man Christ Jesus, giving ourselves to intimacy, understanding what he's like, what he thinks like. Because in that day, though this seems so severe, I tell you, I tell you the truth, it will be 100% justice 100% if it offends you now I tell you you've got time to fast and pray come into the knowledge of God come into knowing who he is what are his dealings cry out for mercy cry out for revival cry out for God to break in oh beloved he's promised us that he's gonna break in with revival it's a stroke of mercy before he comes Let's just stand. I want to challenge, and I know we've gone a little bit late tonight, but let's just hang in for a minute. There's such sobriety when I preach these messages. I'm I'm stunned with it every time. It's interesting to me. I pray in a minute the Lord will give it weight and it will pierce hearts. But for now, I I love the sobriety, Lord. Thank you. I want to... I want to address anyone who feels like they're called to be a messenger at the end of the age. I want to address you. And I just want... I pray the fantasy would be removed from what you believe that to be. I, I pray that tonight God would begin to breathe on you. That fantasy would be removed from you. That he would begin to speak to your heart with courage and revelation. And what do I mean by messenger? I mean a singer, uh, a preacher, a, an intercessor. Anybody who's got any kind of a thing where you speak or, or give something before people. Sing, music, art. Anything that conveys a message. God's calling you to be a messenger. I, I want to ask the Lord to give courage to you. God, that we'd have real messengers. 
One's even like Jonah, God. I know it took what it took to get him, but God, oh, that we would stand even in places like Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities in all the earth, proclaim with fire the word of the Lord that pierces men's hearts for real. We wouldn't shy away from the message because it's unpopular. God, I pray for trumpet blowers, trumpet blowers in this hour, watchmen, Give us watchmen, God. 